Holy Monday. This is a special morning edition of Restoring the Faith Media. I have two very special guests here. Father Paul Kramer joining us from Cork, Ireland, and Eric Gajewski from Tradcat Night. We did a show a couple weeks ago, gentlemen. It's gotten a lot of buzz, something like 20,000 views. People are very interested in Our Lady of Fatima. Whether or not the upcoming at the time consecration was going to be uh, valid and uh, whether or not we would see a visible change in the world. This is a look back show about all things Our Lady of Fatima and Catholic prophecy. I uh, want to turn it over quickly to immediately to Father Paul Kramer. Uh, first of all, I haven't seen Russia convert. Father, how long do we have to wait before we see Russia convert? They're still invading Ukraine. There's still war. Uh, what's 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 going on with that? The reason why God requests the consecration of Russia, as we recall, when the request was made, Our Lady said, this is God, in the name of the Blessed Trinity, she says that God asked for the consecration of Russia. By this means, Russia will be saved, Russia will be converted, uh, and peace will be given to the world. Now, Sister Lucia asked our Lord directly on one occasion, why is this consecration necessary? And he replied to her, because I want my whole church to acknowledge uh, this consecration as a triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary so that the devotion to the Immaculate Heart of Mary will be set, set alongside the devotion to my Sacred Heart. So there must be a visible uh, relation between the act of consecration and its effect, which is to bring about the conversion of Russia and world peace. Uh, the idea that, well, it's not going to be immediate, uh, uh, it, it, it doesn't, you know, it, it's not going to be a miracle. Well, how would they know it's not going to be a miracle? Or they, be, or they become almost verging on sacrilegious, saying it's not going to work like magic, as if God is some kind of a magician from heaven, presto changeo. Uh, no, uh, we have to be serious about uh, how the word of the, the, the promise of God. God's, God promises to save Russia, to convert Russia, and to bring peace to the world by means of this consecration. That means when this consecration is done, it will be visibly seen that the result of this consecration is the conversion of Russia and world peace. And that means that it has to take place in a very timely manner. Uh, in the 1984 Act of Consecration, uh, there was no conversion of Russia. There was no world, pe world peace. Yeah, And that was what we kept hearing. Well, it's not going to happen immediately. It's going to happen slowly. We see signs that Russia is beginning to convert and all this kind of nonsense. And, uh, yeah, Russia has been beginning to convert for the last 38 years uh, since that consecration. And uh, what's happened? The war has broken out between Russia and Ukraine. Is that the peace uh, that's, that's supposed to break out uh, uh, as a... As a as, as a fulfillment of a promise? Uh, I think not. It's the opposite. <laughs> Eric, um, I hear neocons say that, you know, that the breakup of the Soviet empire, the USSR, was was visible proof of their conversion, you know, and, and, and visible proof that the consecration was valid back then. This is just a political neocon speak, though, right? I mean, I, I don't know how anyone can think, oh, the wall, the wall came down, and so that's, that's proof of something. Right, yeah. No, I think uh, the whole collapse of 
communism uh, theory by neocons has to be one of the greatest hoaxes uh, that perpetuates in our times. Uh, but to follow up where uh, Father Kramer just sort of left off, um, if Russia was truly consecrated uh, in times past, why again? Why, why the need to do it again? Uh, and so it prompted me uh, this past week to write an article myself in regards to um, the supposed age of peace that certain certain apologists are out there saying, and even state of a contest, I'm not aware if, 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 if both of you are aware of this, but there are actually state of a contest running around saying that the consecration of Russia has already uh, taken place too as well, surprisingly. Uh, but just some, some points uh, to consider here, uh, gentlemen. First, uh, first of all, these, these people uh, who are suggesting such, they whitewash the apostasy cleanly. Uh, they don't differentiate between modernism and Catholicism. Uh, two, as uh, Father Kramer has mentioned, Russia's not Catholic <laughs> at this point. Uh, three, the world is not Catholic because we know during uh, the age of peace or the triumph of the Immaculate Heart, the whole world, what's left of it, is going to be Catholic. Uh, four, and I mentioned this point uh, before, uh, Mike, um, in, in accordance with Catholic prophecy, I say this jokingly uh, on my uh, podcast, did I sleep through the three days of darkness? Uh, <laughs> I mean, this is supposed to happen first. Uh, it will be yeah. sort of our parting of the Red Sea moment, if you will, that will lead us into the age of peace. So either I took a long nap through that or uh, that apparently happened. And uh, the other point, I, just what it, we just uh, mentioned, the hoax that communism indeed fell. The communists just simply... Um, took a different tactic rather than being so overt on the surface level. They infiltrated uh, world governments. They infiltrated the Vatican. Of course, this is in, in times past. And you take a step back from the world, and it's predominantly socialist communist uh, when you take a step back. And I encourage everyone mm -hmm. to reread uh, AA 1025 memoirs of an anti-apostle. And uh, two more points, and I'll, I'll throw it back to you, Mike, because I know we're, we're going to do a little bit more of a condensed show here today. Is the world better from a Catholic perspective, morally speaking? We had Anthony Stein on the podcast this past week, and we were, we were uh, joking about how, uh, you know, these neocons are trying to suggest that we are living uh, in a better society, if you will. But the, the reality of the situation, objectively speaking, is we know it's getting worse. Uh, the Days of Lot news headlines continue to uh, blast across uh, the headlines. And last, the triumph period, uh, it is foretold in uh, Catholic prophecy, we'll, we will have a great uh, European king uh, and pope. Uh, basically, the world returning to monarchy. This is a specific point now uh, that certain apologists have failed to overlook. So that obviously has not happened uh, as well. Republics yeah. and democracies will fold. Nope, hasn't happened yet, uh, Mike. So Yeah, uh, that's a good point. Great Catholic monarch to come. Father, uh, aren't, aren't trads just mean? I mean, it, you know, you get this, you get this a lot. Um, and, and not all trads are the same. And, and the three of us have wildly different opinions about various things. I'm sure we don't all agree on everything, but what we, but, but with respect to doubting the validity of this particular consecration, you hear it so often, you guys just wanted it to fail. And if you were critical of it, even before it happened, uh, you know, a lot of us were accused of being, you know, just naysayers, just mean. Uh, two to four percent of the Russian population. Did we lose father? Did he go out? Did the lights go out? So, with two to four percent of the Russian people going to the Orthodox services, uh, 
uh, even by this, even by the standards of the return to the practice of their own uh, uh, schismatic religion, uh, that's hardly the condition of Russia. And then when you consider, uh, as the Archbishop of the Catholic Diocese of Arch the Catholic Archdiocese of Moscow says, that it's the Russian Orthodox hierarchy that has the great suspicion against the Fatima. And this is at the present day. This is just a few days ago. You made this remark. Uh, this is this can hardly be considered the conversion of Russia. Uh, so no, the, the the consecration obviously is the, the consecration obviously has not taken place yet, because if the if the consecration had been validly performed, we wouldn't already be witnessing the fruits of of that consecration, which is the fulfillment of the promise. And there's no sign of the fulfillment of the promise. What what we see shaping up is the great chastisement foretold in the third secret of Fatima. And for that to be averted, it has to be a true and valid Pope mm. who will consecrate Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And enough has been revealed about the third secret by people who have read the third secret and they've communicated some of the contents to others. Uh, Pope Benedict is a cardinal. Uh, revealed uh, some aspects of the secret to Dr. Ingo Dollinger. Uh, I spoke with Dr. Dollinger. Uh, a young priest in uh, in Brazil spoke with Dr. Dollinger. Uh, I, I traveled to Brazil and I discussed uh, uh, the contents of the secret. I, I I went to Dr. Dollinger's house. I spoke about it with him. Uh, Malachi Martin, I spoke with Malachi Martin about the third secret. He heard the contents of the secret directly from Cardinal Bea, who... Uh, who was a witness to the to the reading of the season with Pope John the Twenty Third? Then uh, it, it has been uh, made known as the, the fact has been published that uh, Pope Pius the Twelfth opened the secret in 1957 and read it. And Cardinal uh, Samuel Stritch was present, uh, and there was a, a priest there by the name of Lawrence Emmett Hughes who spoke about the content of the secret. And there is an agreement between all the sources. Who, who, uh, who had read the secret or heard it directly? Malachi Martin, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, uh, uh, Cardinal Stritch, uh, Father Hughes, and there is full agreement between everything they say. They don't have matching entirely point by point, but there is a full, total agreement between the content, and they are all speaking uh, about what will happen to the mass. And this is part of the chastisement. And we can sum up this. The very heart of the third secret of Fatima is that there will be a reform in the church. A reform movement will begin, and it would be an evil council that would begin this reform movement, which by stages will lead to the, 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 the abolishing, the prohibition of the celebration of the, of the, of the Holy Mass. That is going to lead to the suppression of the Mass, a reform a heretic antipope is going to uh, enact a reform that is going to uh, change, uh, that is going to attempt to change the, the, the divine constitution of the church, in, in, of course, which is impossible. Uh, what it will constitute is a defection of a, a very large portion of the church will defect into schism and heresy. It will be the consummation of the Protestant Reformation that will take place with uh, fulfilling what uh, was the agenda of Martin Luther, who said, Tole Misam, Tole Ecclesiam, destroy the mass, destroy the church. 
And that is exactly what Jorge Bergoglio has set out to do. And that's why the Synodal Church, already foretold by St. Hildegard, Hildegard of Bingen, that the, that the Catholics will prefer uh, their own uh, church leaders to the Pope. The, so that's, a, that's a Synodal Church where you have the, the, the bishops' conferences uh, uh, through synods will, will be uh, the, the, the seat of authority in the church. The so-called pope will just be a rubber stamp. Mm-hmm. And this is the synodal church, the reform of, of, of Jorge Bergoglio, who calls himself Francis, Bishop of Rome, as he claims to be, which he is not. And uh, the agenda was uh, announced uh, uh, in a very physical, uh, palpable manner when he uh, opened the synod by placing the statue of Martin Luther yeah. uh, in St. Peter's. This is the second time in his anti-pontificate that he has done this. He did it in 2016 on the 13th of October of all days, the 13th of October, the anniversary of the miracle of the son of Fatima. He put the statue of Saint of, uh, of, uh, of Martin Luther in St. Peter's uh, when, the, the, when the Lutherans from Germany were, were uh, on their visit uh, and is uh, talking about communion with the uh, full, full communion with the Protestants. Uh, so he did it again with the opening of the Synod on Synodality. And so we know the Synod of Synodality is inspired by uh, uh, Martin Luther's reform. So he's, he, he spoke with uh, the former uh, Jesuit Superior General, uh, Father Adolfo Nicolas, and said that he, 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 he doesn't want to leave office until his reforms become irreversible. So he wants to make these permanent he wants to be these reforms to be permanent fixtures in the church, which is a consummation of the of the Protestant Reformation, uh, and this this is his agenda: full communion with Protestants and Catholics, and it's already already set out in a document on synodality uh, from the Vatican, uh, from the from the uh, the dicastery on 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 this on the synod. And it was a 2015 document where they speak of uh, of communion in of unity in diversity. So it's not a question of the Protestants uh, and the, the other uh, non-Catholic so-called Christian religions uh, converting to the Catholic faith and 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 in coming into full communion uh, mm-hmm. according to the bonds of communion, the the, the bond of faith, uh, the bond of the sacraments, and the bond of ecclesiastical governance. No. Uh, it is universe, un, unity and diversity, which is the very Protestant ecclesiology that we are all united, even though we have different beliefs, we're all united, we are different denominations of the one Christian church. And this is what we read in Protestant literature. That is, the, that is an essentially Protestant constitution of the church, and that is Bergoglio's agenda. His heresy is identical with that of Martin Luther. Uh, they were both Gnostics, by the way, and I'm going to bring that out in my third volume. But the the personal heresy and the agenda of uh, Jorge Bergoglio, I've already uh, done a great deal of research on it, and that's why I have a 642-page book. This is hot off the press. I just received the... Ah, the on, the true, on the true... Uh, what does it say, Father? On the true... On the true and the false pope. The case, ag- the case... On the true and the Bergoglio. false pope. The case against Bergoglio. And where can we find the uh, the book? I, I know it's not ideal to buy it on Amazon. Is there a better way to buy it? 
There will be a better way to buy it. Uh, it should have been available already in, in January. Uh, but uh, in the United States, the publisher says that there is a shortage of paper, so they couldn't print the book yet. Uh, so right now, the only way you can get it is on Amazon, uh, unfortunately, because uh, the hardcover edition is what from at Servants of Jesus and Mary, the 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 American uh, Fatima Center, originally of Father Gruner, uh, the, the, the Servants of Jesus and Mary uh, uh, is the distributor of the book in the United States. The hardcover, there's a beautiful hardcover edition, but it's just not printed yet because it should have been, but it's, it's the paper shortage that, that has caused the delay. Yeah, supply chains. Eric, um, <laughs> the Synod on Synodality, as Dr. Anthony Stein, one of your regular guests, has referred to as Vatican III. It's a, it's just a quiet Vatican III. Father Paul Kramer is pretty um, you know, pretty skeptical about the Synod on Synodality. Do you do you agree with him that this is that this is related to the unreleased third secret of Fatima, what we're living through right now? Oh, absolutely. And the word that comes to mind uh, for me specifically uh, on this topic is the regionalism. It's it's a flattening out, flattening out of the church hierarchy, right, from monarchical uh, fashion into democratic sort of flatline collegiality, um, uh, collegiality position. And in my humble opinion, when it gets worse, because it is going to get worse uh, even after Francis, I know there's a lot of Catholics that think he is actually the biblical false prophet, but he is he is not. There's still uh, worse to come. Um, when uh, this character does show up, uh, he, this is what he's going to uh, preach. He, he's not only going to preach uh, regionalism, but he's going to, to preach that uh, all men are divine in and of themselves alongside of the Antichrist. I'm one of those rare few Catholics who thinks that the Antichrist is right around the corner. I think Father Kramer actually does uh, agree with me on that uh, topic. And uh, another point that I, I wanted to make out from, from day one, I've been saying Benedict XVI was the true Pope, and I was citing some articles, which you can all look up yourself if you just go into Google and type in uh, Benedict the Sixteenth assassination attempts. You're going to find out that there were attempts on his life uh, by the Saint Gallian Mafia, and it was referred to by other cardinals. Uh, so before we really started breaking down, uh, the, you know, the theology behind it, which Father Kramer has done uh, such a good job, Professor Violi at first, and still a lot of others who have joined in the ranks of uh, saying that Benedict the Sixteenth is the true Pope. Coincidentally, I think Taylor Marshall is even saying that. Patrick Coffin, some people that maybe we might not have suspected. At uh, the, you know, the beginning point, have said this, um, but it comes back. A point I want to make is this: uh, Blessed Anna Emmerich, from a Catholic uh, prophetic standpoint, it's very clear that there would be the worst schism uh, that the church would ever see. You know, during uh, the end times, Blessed Anna Emmerich talked about this. You've got so many different saints warning about this apostate church of darkness, including Padre Pio. And I don't know if you all recall back. Um, when the topic of Fra uh, St. Francis's uh, destroyer uh, prophecy was like really picking up speed and a lot of traditionalists were talking about it. And it must have it must have gotten back to Francis because he actually commented on it and he kind of jokingly said, yeah, I might be the one to cause the system in the church. And uh, there's been a lot of stuff that has flown out of that man's uh, mouth and um, that has been more than a questionable. Um, and the other point I, I want to make too here is I, I believe that Benedict XVI knows that he's uh, this end time uh, Pope. Um, 
to flee Rome. You've got so many prophecies talking about this, but even Pope St. Pius X talking about it. He said uh, this particular pope would actually take up his same name, which they both have uh, the, the, the same uh, first name, uh, Joseph. Uh, and then going back to your point on the, on the neocons, uh, uh, Mike, or just, I don't know, I, maybe the better term is to just use like people who have a little bit softer position than Father Kramer and, and I. Uh, there were some polls out there, one specifically, which I mentioned when you joined me on, on my podcast uh, last week or whatever week that was, uh, on Telegram with LifeSite News. And it seemed like not even the LifeSite News crowd thought yeah. that was a, a valid uh, consecration, like only 9% of the people polled. And most of them, like 40%, were sort of on the fence. And then the other 40-something percent said, no, it's, it's not going to uh, do what is intended. So um, I think the writing's, the writing's on the wall with that. If I if I could, uh, Mike, and I hate to hate to do this because I think this is going to be super important for people to know, because uh, I woke up this morning getting through all my emails and all this stuff, and I was tagged in a post. Uh, by Nicholas Landholt, who's uh, running for some a political office down there in Texas, also a traditional Catholic. Well, he tagged Father Kramer and I in a post uh, this morning, which was a book written in 2018 by Bernal Diaz. And he's a self-proclaimed Catholic, who in reality is a heretic and schismatic. He's claiming that the last pope was in 1878. I kid you not. Uh, so I know there's disagreements amongst the state of a contest. That's the first I've ever heard of the last true pope being in 1878 he actually claims pope saint pius x uh is an anti-pope citing um our lady of co-redemptrix uh, which we know will be stamped down at a future council as a dogmatic um but the, the points that i was making in return is a of course he's a heretic and schismatic but what i noticed was in his book on this attack on fatima was that he was working and using largely the work of uh, L.A. Marzulli from back in 2017. So Marzulli's work came out in 2017. His book came out, uh, you know, an anti-Catholic, uh, anti-Fatima book in 2018. And he was using the same points that L.A. Now, the reason why I know this is because I've interviewed L.A. Marzulli on my show. And when he told me off air before one of our uh, interviews, uh, he said he was putting together this uh, Fatima documentary. And he was going through like the main points, basically, of it. And so I refuted each of his points, and he just kind of sat there like a child, not knowing what to say after the uh, fact. Now, the reason why I'm mentioning this because this would probably be a great segue uh, for Father, because he was mentioning a book that I wasn't aware of, where maybe even before some of these, you know, Protestant uh, attacks were coming from it. Maybe Father can mention this uh, book because I hadn't heard of it until he mentioned it while we were talking off air, but. Um, we know the Fatima message is going to be attacked. Um, quite, quite a few interesting points <clears throat> that you br- that you bring up, Father Kramer. Um, uh, one of the things that Eric says that I, I think is really interesting is, you know, I think the two of you were were out way out uh, front on on you know denying uh, Francis's uh, validity. That has become more of a normalized position lately, and more people. Are private. I think more people are privately holding that opinion, not so much publicly yet, but a lot of people are at least um, have some have some legitimate doubts. As Eric mentioned, Patrick Coffin is the latest, you know, commentator to come out and say that he's a, uh, you know, a beneficentist, which is I know that's not the right word, but uh, colloquially, um, I don't think I I don't think that Marshall has said that. He is, uh, Eric, but but maybe you've seen something that I haven't seen. Uh, but anyway, I think a lot of people, Father, have very serious doubts. And you guys were 
you guys were on the leading edge. Do you at all now feel vindicated by more people jumping on board and Barnhart and, and, and company or, or does it matter to you how many people are in agreement on this particular point? Uh, this is something that is inevitable. It had to happen. Uh, so I'm not in the least bit surprised that it's happening. Uh, the third secret of Fatima will confirm when it is released. The third secret of Fatima will, will confirm exactly what Francis Bergoglio is, that he is, he was a heretic. He is an anti-pope and he, uh, not just a personal heretic, uh, if it were possible for a pope to be a, a heretic, uh, there are canons of the church, which are the rulings of the popes, that a pope cannot be judged for anything except for heresy. And the reason why a pope can be judged for heresy is because if he's a heretic, he's an incapable subject of the papacy. He's not capable even of being a pope. He's intrinsically incapable of being Pope. So if a man is a heretic, that itself is absolute proof that the man is not the Pope. And this was explained by Pietro Ballerini. Uh, his, doc his doctrine, which fills two volumes, uh, De Potestate Ecclesiastica uh, Sumorum Pontificum et Concilium uh, Generalium. Uh, and there was his uh, book on the... Uh, 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 on the primacy, De uh, that book, together with his book on uh, uh, the ecclesiastical power, which is ecclesiastical jurisdiction, formed the basis of what was used uh, to formulate the dogmatic pronouncement of the First Vatican Council on the primacy of the Pope. What Ballerini did was he made a systematic refinement of St. Robert Ballerini's teaching. And that's why uh, Ballerini's uh, work became the, uh, the basis for the dogmatic pronouncement. And when the dogmatic pronouncement was explained, what exactly did the First Vatican Council uh, teach? How do, we, how do we understand this? Uh, the uh, cardinals like Cardinal Manning uh, uh, explained in terms of the of the the doctrine set forth by Ballerini, that this is how we understand the dogmatic pronouncement of the First Vatican Council, going back to the work of Ballerini, uh, who, who who wrote these books in the 1760s, 1770s, around that period. Uh, and no sooner were they were they uh, published, and then Pope Pius VI uh, issued an encyclical. Uh, it was called the Super Soliditate, where he explains that the, the dogma of the primacy is a dogma of the universal church, of the universal magisterium. It was not yet solemnly defined. So uh, that's, that's the, uh, just to give you an idea of the authority of this author. Uh, uh, so Ballerini is a canonist. Was a, he was a canonist. He was an eminent canonist. Uh, he, he wrote on the sources of canon. He wrote volumes on the sources of, of, of canon law. And he explains that the canons on papal heresy uh, exist because uh, there can be no uh, injury done to the primacy of the pope. A pope cannot be judged for anything. And he explains at length why this is why a pope can never be judged uh, for so long as he holds the primacy. 
He is a successor of Peter, and he cannot be judged for anything. The Pope has a total fullness of supreme power, in the words of Vatican I. That this is the solemn definition. A total fullness of supreme power. So his full and supreme jurisdiction consists of a total fullness of supreme power. That's why Pius XII in Vacantes uh, Apostolicis Sedis refers to it as a, a full and absolute jurisdiction. And because he has a full uh, and absolute jurisdiction, a total fullness of supreme power, the council defined that all questions of faith and morals are reserved for the judgment of the Pope. So for so long as the Pope has the primacy as successor of St. Peter, a council cannot judge the Pope for heresy because, as the council defined, the jurisdiction of all the bishops exists in hierarchical subordination to the jurisdiction of the primacy. And that's why the judgment is reserved for the Pope. So if a council gathers and condemns the Pope as a heretic, if he is a valid Pope, uh, the final judgment is reserved for the Pope. And wow. so the, the, there's no way on earth, uh, since the, the jurisdiction of the Pope is a total fullness of supreme power, it's a total jurisdiction, there is no jurisdiction outside of the Pope's jurisdiction. So there's no jurisdiction for a council to judge a valid Pope. So this is why Ballerini says that the, the canons on papal heresy, that the, a, a pope can be judged for, for nothing except for heresy, that the, exact, the exception exists in virtue of the fact that if the pope would fall into heresy, he would immediately cease to be pope. Uh, he, would lose, he, would, he would lose the primacy. He would cease to be pope. And that is why uh, he can be judged without any uh, injury uh, uh, done to the primacy in making such a judgment. Does it, uh, it does it, Benedict, if he is, if he is in fact still Pope Father? And this is a question I think a lot of people who hear this argument they say, okay, come on, this can't be real. But doesn't Benedict have an obligation to claim to the faithful? If he is still the reigning pontiff and he believes that he's the reigning pontiff, doesn't he have an obligation to signal that in some way to people? Oh, there would be, exist an objective moral obligation, but this is again we're we're, we're talking about abstract truths here. Uh, there exists the obligation, but does he perceive that obligation? That's a, that's another question entirely. Benedict uh, is in error. On a very essential point regarding the the the, the papal munus. Now, the munus is uh, is the office, the Petrine office itself. The man who holds the munus holds the office, and uh, Benedict formulated his renunciation in such a manner, clearly worded it making the distinction between the munus and the ministry. Mm -hmm. So he's aware of the distinction between the munus and the ministry, and then he says, I renounce the ministry. He explains why, then he explains why he, he renounces the ministry, because he can't, carry the, he can't carry out the duties of the munus, which is the ministry, and so he renounces the ministry, but not the munus. If there's any doubt as to what was his intention, uh, 
two weeks later, on the 27th of February, uh, 2013, he explained that he renounced the active exercise of the ministry. But when he received uh, the, the mumus, he, but he's not speaking in Latin now, he's speaking in Italian, so that, that commitment, that impegno, when it's, I was impegnato, I was uh, uh, charged with this uh, responsibility of office, uh, with this munus, I was in charge with this munus. Uh, and that is for always. That is, uh, there is no return to the private life. That is for always. And therefore, he says, uh, my decision to renounce the active exercise of the ministry does not revoke this. Now, his error is to think that he could, by this act of renunciation, he renounces the ministry. By renouncing the ministry, uh, he can relinquish uh, the exercise of the office the, and the power of exercising the office, the, the power of governance, uh, the power to, to teach infallibly, the power to, uh, to legislate, to judge uh, in an official capacity as the pope that he can pass this on to a successor while uh, not fully renouncing the munus because he wanted to retain uh, the spiritual uh, duties of the, of, the, of the papacy, the spiritual aspect of the papacy, so that he uh, would be like a retired bishop, uh, which is a bishop emeritus. But the difference, the flaw in his reasoning is this. A bishop who is a bishop emeritus uh, relinquishes his munus to govern and to teach, to judge, to legislate, as the ordinary jurisdiction uh, of, the, of the bishop of a diocese. Now, that is given by the pope. That could be taken away by the Pope. If he resigns his office and the Pope accepts the resignation, he loses his power of jurisdiction over the diocese. But he is still a bishop because the sacrament of, of orders, the fullness of the, 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 the fullness of the priesthood, which he received with the Episcopal consecration, remains with him forever. So that never leaves a bishop. He's still the, he is still a bishop, but he is no longer bishop of a diocese. So he can be called bishop emeritus because he's still a bishop. But a pope becomes pope when he receives the munus by accepting the munus. And then he, re, as a bishop, he receives the jurisdiction which makes him pope. The munus makes him pope. There's no sacrament that makes him pope. The munus is in virtue of his accepting his election. He accepts the election. He immediately receives uh, the full and absolute jurisdiction over the whole world, as Pius XII uh, teaches. So, uh, if he is going to resign as Pope, if he's going to renounce the papacy and make the chair vacant so another man can be elected Pope, he must renounce that munus. If he renounces the munus, Totally, so that he, there's no claim on the moonus whatsoever. He vacates, 
he relinquishes entirely the munus. He is no longer pope. He is only a bishop now. Uh, he would be a cardinal again, uh, but he would, sacramentally speaking, he is just a bishop, and hierarchically, he is not a pope anymore. He cannot be a pope emeritus because he is not a pope in any sense of the word if he resigns, if he renounces the munus. Now, the munus is not divisible. It, it is... It is, after all, the Petrine office. The Munus is uh, indivisible because it is conferred by Christ on St. Peter. It was an ordinary jurisdiction conferred on St. Peter, which is passed on to Peter's successors. And that the holder of the Munus is the holder of the primacy. And there's a total equivalence. Uh, so there's no way it can exist in degrees. There cannot be a partial renunciation of the munus. Uh, I renounce the munus insofar as the governing power, but I retain the spiritual aspect of the munus. Uh, if a pope were to phrase his uh, renunciation in that manner, it is null and void, because it is all or none. It is like uh, ordination to the priesthood, uh, for a man to become a priest, he must consent fully to receive the sacrament. If he does not fully consent, he's not a priest. Even if, even if the ordaining bishop ordains him, it's invalid. He's not a priest because he didn't fully consent. And the same thing is with a pope. If a pope is going to renounce the office, he must fully renounce the monus, relinquish the monus entirely so that he becomes a former pope and he's no longer in any sense of the word of pope. If he does that, he is no longer pope and he has validly resigned the office. But if he intends to withhold some of that monus for himself, he hasn't renounced the monus. Uh, we have to distinguish between the object and the effect. The object of renunciation is the munus. So if the Pope intends that the object of his renunciation is the munus, then he validly resigns office and leaves office. However, if he intends the effect of, of his renunciation, to vacate the office, to vacate the, the, the papacy, to vacate the chair of Peter so a as, so as successor can be elected. But if that is only the intended effect, that's not the object of the renunciation. If the object of the renunciation is the exercise of the ministry, if he renounces the ministry but not the monus, then it doesn't matter what is the intended effect. The effect is impossible. Unless, he, unless, unless the object of the renunciation is the munus, there is no effect. Uh, and, and it's the same thing with sacraments, uh, as Pope Leo XIII explains in his ruling, that if a Protestant minister baptizes, even if he explicitly declares that it is not his intention that by this sacrament, original sin will be taken away and that that uh, sanctifying grace will be infused, it doesn't matter. If the 
intention, if, if the object of his intention was to baptize, the effect is given. God works the effect and takes away original sin and confers grace, even if the minister intends that it not be given. And it's the same principle that is operative here. The object of a papal renunciation must be the munus, the total munus, the entirety of the munus. If the Pope renounces the Munus entirely, it has mm -hmm. the effect. It has the, the effect of vacating the office. If the Pope renounces the ministry or renounces partially the Munus, but not all of it, then no matter what was the intended effect, it does not have the effect of vacating the office. This was Pope Benedict's error. And that's why he is clearly, obviously, still the Pope if one just has a clear understanding of uh, of the nature of these of, of of the of the moral object of these actions, Eric, this raises My, so many questions. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, I wanted to, if I could, it's a few points picking up on that. And Father is the best in the biz when when talking uh, on that particular uh, point there. And again, I encourage everyone to pick up uh, both of his volumes, which I have uh, personally myself, and we also promote at Tradcat Night too as well. Uh, we always promote Father's uh, work. Uh, but circling back to the whole uh, Benedict XVI um, question, one has to um, ask the question, why did Benedict XVI back in 2009, uh, Faith in the Future, uh, this book was called, you can get it from Ignatius Press. Why did Benedict XVI say that the Catholic Church will become small and have to start afresh more or less from the beginning. She will no longer be able to inhabit many of the edifices she built in prosperity. If that does not indicate that he knows that there's an apostasy ongoing and knows essentially that's going to get worse, right? Like we're talking catacombs now, right? Smaller, more purified uh, church than I don't know what is. And again, this is why I do believe he knows um, that he is uh, that Pope. Uh, that is mentioned in Catholic prophecy. Uh, so, and then again, always reference uh, Blessed Anna Emmerich's uh, writings, how he was put off to the side in uh, a, a castle, if you will. He could trust very few uh, cardinals at that point in time. There's uh, like some st some striking details to these prophecies, which indicate that it is Benedict the Sixteenth. Primo mentioned that he'll actually make his way through uh, Germany. Uh, we saw what was it last year, or the year before, where he visited his brother uh, George, who had uh, passed away, and it was right. pretty close to Cologne. Um, so there's a lot of interesting detail, and of course, I'm uh, the same question to you though, Eric, uh, that I threw to, to Father Kramer, which is, uh, you know, look for for those who are sitting on the fence who are evaluating this argument, they're you know they're like, okay, this makes a lot of sense, but doesn't Pope Benedict have the obligation to inform us or to to assert his claimancy? Um, to the papal crown. I mean, especially, especially in light of the fact that he's sitting here watching Jorge Bergoglio undo a lot of his good work, uh, especially with respect to the traditional movement. Sure, uh, Father uh, Father Kramer mentioned one point. I'll, I'll raise another point. If he does, does he become another uh, John Paul one? Does he get taken out? And then where does where does that put us? Does that help? Yeah. Us? Does that help the church? So I'll argue that I think he he could be maybe playing the game, you know, type of situation. Blessed Anna Emmerich mentions in her writings that he was a worldly pope. You know, he's too worldly. This is why he'll actually flee. Um, so he's maybe he's clinging on in self-love. Maybe he doesn't want to become a martyr. I mean, there's there's a lot of different questions to be raised. Me personally, I think he's playing the game. 
I mean, I think he knows he comes out. Yep, I'm the true putt. Well, he's going to get knocked out. They're going to take him out, mm-hmm. um, in my personal opinion. But do um, you think at 90 years old he really fears death that much? I mean, and and secondly, suppose he were to die while Francis is still alive. Are, there's not going to be a conclave. Well, maybe maybe Father can weigh in on, on that question because we've actually covered that in some podcast past, and I, I think it would be more beneficial to hear it from the mouths of a priest as opposed to a silly layman like myself. But Father Kramer will definitely give you uh, an answer on that. But I, before we do that, if I could just raise one more point because I know we're getting a little bit more shorter on time here, sure. uh, Mike, and I want to fast forward ahead a little bit because we got right around the corner, literally a month, the feast day of Fatima. So was the bogus creation all just sort of a psyop set up for the false peace program? Um, again, referencing this this silly uh, book by Bernardo Diaz, which he says the Fatima message in and of itself is ecumenical and it's demonic and all that stuff. No, it is authentic, but we know the modernists are using it for their advantage for ecumenism and for uh, the false unity of the world. So I just want to remind everyone uh, that I got an article up uh, last week entitled that uh, in regards to um, the feast day of Fatima, the growing concern that I have. And keep in mind, since uh, Vatican II, we're dealing with uh, a false philosophy, the newer integral humanism. We've got a false evan- new evangelization. You've got false doctrines. You've got false liturgy. You've got false everything across the board, counterfeit, right? The counterfeit conciliar church. Um, so is it possible that we're dealing with uh, a bogus creation, a counterfeit consecration, which is leading everyone into this one world false unity mindset so don't be surprised if something happens on may the 13th now in accordance with garabandal which i realize is a a more a highly controversial um uh marian apparition uh, site i've not formally stood behind it but i do see that there's some interesting details i know padre pio did father malachi martin did and others uh but it does make mention of a quote-unquote a pope heading to moscow eventually and the headlines are saying right now as we speak Francis is thinking about going to Kiev. Putin basically said, don't dare try that <laughs> type of thing. So I, I think we're getting dangerously close to him arriving uh, in Moscow, according to Garibandal. Then this false detente uh, takes place where supposed peace will reign between Russia and you know United States NATO countries. And then shortly there and after, the Russian blitzkrieg starts. So that's what, let's pay attention to see what happens on May the 13th, if the, if the conciliar church, Francis specifically uses um, that date for their, for their version of uh, the Fatima message, if you will. Uh, yeah. But may, maybe you can circle back to father and, and, and he can answer that uh, question a little bit better uh, theologically. Yeah, speaking. sure. I, I think, I think that's a good idea, father. And then also just, um, you know, also picking up on something that, that Eric has said, you know, the messaging for this uh, supposed consecration it changed so much from the date of announcement to the date of it actually happening. You know, they, they changed the language. It was an old switcheroo felt like a bait and switch. Uh, all of a sudden, you know, Benedict was going to be involved and then he was going to be doing it. And then he wasn't really involved. And um, you know, so leading up to May 13th, I think Eric is exactly right uh, for us to be bracing for the worst, you know, and they're probably going to announce one thing and then do another thing. Um Thoughts on that and or thoughts on, you know, how people can unpack in their minds. What happens if Francis dies first? What happens if uh, Benedict dies first? Uh, How do we get out of this mess? Well, uh, uh, we got into this mess because uh, the human race has rebelled against God. And uh, uh, 
the message of Fatima is premised that the, the world will be chastised uh, if, if men do not repent. So if people don't repent, uh, we can't expect anything to work. And that the consecration that was promised is not good. The grace to do it will not be given in, in, unless there is a significant uh, repentance to merit that grace. So as far as uh, uh, the effect of the consecration uh, that was carried out by Bergoglio, the, the foreseeable effect is that in the minds of the, the great mass of people, they're going to think that, well, the, the Pope, the so-called Pope, carried out the, the consecration, did the consecration of Russia, as, as Our Lady of Fatima requested. Peace was not given. They're going to see that, that everything's going to unravel. Things are going to go from, from bad to worse. And, as, and in the minds of the public, it will just discredit the message of Fatima. But uh, uh, God has saved the, his, 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 his ace of spades uh, uh, for last. When the third secret is finally released, everything that's happening in the world uh, the, the, the threatened chastisement, point by point, everything uh, that is happening, will, people will see that this was written down in 1944 by Sister Lucia, and everything foretold there is being fulfilled. There will be no doubt that, 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 that the, the, the secret of Fatima is the message from heaven. The message of Our Lady of Fatima is a message from God. There will be no doubt in anyone's mind. And there will be no doubt in anyone's mind uh, who and what uh, Jorge Bergoglio is, that he is, that he is an anti-pope. He is part of the chastisement. He is the chastisement. He is not the remedy for the chastisement. He is the chastisement itself. He is that pope who is a false pope, an anti-pope, a heretic, the one who brings to consummation the work of Martin Luther, who was a Gnostic, uh, Freemasonry is a, is, a, is, a, is a Gnostic sect. It is, the ancient, it is an ancient heresy. It goes back to, uh, uh, in, in the church, it goes back to, uh, to the apostolic times. And uh, that is why the ancient fathers, uh, understanding the nature of heresy and the, the virulence of the attack against the faith and the attacks, attacks against the divinity of Christ, uh, would culminate with... Uh, Rome reverting to its paganism, Rome would lose the faith, mm -hmm. uh, re-embrace paganism, and drive the true vicar of Christ out of Rome, and uh, that uh, 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 the church would uh, appear to disappear, as, as, as to use Cardinal Manning's words, disappear as if it were swept off the face of the earth. And the cardinal makes a point to point in, of, of naming, of quoting some of the ancient fathers, saying this is the unanimous teaching of the ancient fathers and of the great theologians of the church. Uh, you have people like John Salsa and Robert Sisk who say that's heresy, that it's, it's denying the church's Catholicity. It's, a, it's a denying the church's indefectibility. Uh, in that case, uh, the ancient fathers were unanimously in heresy, which, of course, is heresy to just suggest such a thing. <laughs> right. Well, I can't even keep up with where Salza is today anyway on, on any traditional issue. So, uh, well, Salza says that this consecration was valid. Does he? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Doesn't yeah, surprise that's, me. That's tough. Uh, gentlemen, it's, it's been a great honor. You got to follow Eric at Tradcat Night. You've got like four or five podcasts a day. Uh, you've got to follow uh, Father Paul Kramer, buy, buy the books, um, get up to speed. Gentlemen, if I could be so bold as to suggest that both of you come back 
as we get closer to May 13th, maybe around that time or afterwards, as we can do another look back and see, uh, you know, kind of Fatima watch. Anything else you want to yep. uh, drop into the uh, in, into the I show? I just point Eric? out, uh, as I mentioned off air, all these attacks, these, uh, as Eric mentioned, uh, the, the, a book against Fatima, that's basically rehashing what was in a previous book. Now, I, there was a book written over 50 years ago, an attack against Fatima. It was called Fatima Desmascarada, Fat, Fatima Unmasked. Uh, and... Uh, it was full of just the most bogus arguments against Fatima. And this was this was late 60s, early 70s, I believe. And in 1974, the, the bishops of Portugal responded simply by publishing the Documentos, uh, three big volumes, I think, uh, uh, in six languages, of her, and the handwritten photocopies of her, of her documents, written by her by hand, uh, explaining exactly what is the message of Fatima and everything we know about Fatima is in those documentos. Uh, and it completely, just, it com just the documentos, it completely, that completely refuted and, and made nonsense of, 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 of the attack against Fatima. So people need to get back to reading the documents. Read the documents and see what's really there. And you see, it just makes nonsense of all these objections against Fatima. Yeah. And Mike, if I, yeah, if I could just finish first, I want to thank you, Mike, for, for the work that you are doing. And thank you so much for joining me on my programs as well as uh, Father uh, Kramer. Um, but I just put out an article uh, yesterday for those of you who are of the same mindset uh, that I'm at, that the Antichrist could be lurking uh, right around the corner. Uh, and of course, uh, it's it's more indirectly implied. Uh, keep in mind, Father Malachi Martins and said in the late 1990s that he said the Antichrist was uh, right around the corner, that the third secret of Fatima II involves uh, the world system too as well. Uh, we all understand um, where we're at in regards to Agenda 2030. Uh, but my latest article, Pawns in the Game, what to look for next in the staging for um, Rome's, uh, how should we put this, propaganda to embrace the beast and beast worship uh just went up late last night i did some live shows uh, last night as a result of that we've got quite a few new members so i just want to encourage everyone uh do join us uh at Tradcat night where you have uh the father paul kramers the, you know mike from restoring the faith anthony stein we've got some of the top traditional uh priests who are members top traditional uh apologists who are members and uh, mike just uh again thank you for all the hard work that you're doing i know you're putting in a lot of hours too getting this info out so uh, appreciate yeah. the time. Yeah, my pleasure. I show. I'm showing on the screen at least the uh, teaser for your article, Pawns in the Game, What to Look for in the Next Staging of Antichrist in Rome. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining the show today. It, it's been a pleasure, and I hope to talk to you again in, a, in about a month or so. Appreciate it.
Thank you.